Well, if you were here a week ago Sunday, you know the backstory of this little letter. The story of Onesimus, and this is simply what you draw out of the letter from reading the letter itself. And there are other uh, implications of the letter and things that, that even tonight we'll discuss and we'll try and point to. But just the simple basic reading of the letter tells us about a runaway slave named Onesimus. And you know how Onesimus was the slave of a master named Philemon in the Lycus Valley of uh, where the city of Colossae was. And he departed, he left his master, probably on the way out the door, stole something, perhaps money for the journey, we don't really know, but did something negative on the way out the door, running away, ran from Colossae, ended up in Rome. Now, I will tell you there are some commentators who think that Paul wrote it from Ephesus, but all of the evidence points to the prison letters from Rome. Everything Paul says here and in the other prison letters, it ties them together uh, very neatly. So we believe, I'm pretty convinced, he ran all the way to Rome, a thousand miles, to get as far away from Colossae as possible, never again to be recaptured. Well, Onesimus comes into Rome, and I believe by divine providence, gets an audience with Paul. How, we just don't know. I mean, that's beyond the letter. But we know that he came and, and met Paul and talked to Paul. And Paul, who was the instrument God used to save Philemon, now saves Onesimus, the runaway slave. It is a marvelous story. But now Paul has to do something that he doesn't want to do. He's got to send Onesimus back because he is brothers with Philemon, the master. He loves Philemon. Philemon is a friend. And so while he loves Onesimus, and Onesimus has become beloved to Paul, Philemon's beloved to Paul, and Paul has to send him back. At the same time, Onesimus has to go back. Because Onesimus is now brother not only to Paul, but he's also brother to his former master or his master Philemon. He's got to go back. And Paul sends this letter with Onesimus back to Philemon to say, look, you have a responsibility in this too. You need to receive him. And so we have these three men bound together in this very unique story. And again, we we draw this out how none of these men are any longer slaves or masters or prisoners or runaways. They are all now koinonos. That's the word that Paul uses. It's translated partners. It's from the root word of koinonia, which is fellowship. Paul, Onesimus, Philemon are partners in fellowship. And that's what the letter is truly all about. Now again, we looked at the personal side of the letter uh, a week ago Sunday. Tonight we take an expositional look at this little gem. So we're just going to move verse by verse and consider what each verse has to say in light of the whole. Verse 1, the first five words, and we're going to stop. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. When was the last time you referred to yourself that way? A prisoner of Christ Jesus. Redeemed? Oh yeah. (laughs) Saved? Absolutely. Set free? That's me. Prisoner? Well, okay if the pastor says so. You know, that's part of the Bible study. I guess we'll say we're prisoner. Paul, as we talked about, owned this as a badge of honor. A prisoner of Christ. Now, to put this in context, it was 30 years Just 30 years, three decades since the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That happened in 32, roughly A.D., now it's 62. So it had not been long, and the Apostle Paul is under house arrest in Rome, the first of two 
arrest situations. The first one was house arrest. The second one was imprisonment and execution. But Paul is no prisoner of Rome. He is a prisoner, as he writes, of Christ Jesus. I love that. What a great moniker. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Reminds me of the perspective, really, that Jesus had when he was a prisoner. You see, Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate. You remember the story. And Pilate's questioning him and trying to figure out what's going on with this beaten, battered rabbi from Galilee. And as he stands before Pilate, John 19.10 tells us, Pilate said, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered and said, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. The prisoner of Christ Jesus gets that. The prisoner of Christ understands that no man, no woman, no body has authority over me that wasn't given to them from God above. And therefore, it is an authority that I'll accept, even if that means I'm a slave. See, as Onesimus was. Even if that means I'm in a job where I am just pounded on by the boss. Even if that means I'm in a difficult, imprisoned feeling situation in my life. God's the authority. He's the power. He's the one who is the true boss. The prisoner of Christ understands there is no authority over me except my master and my God. And he gives authority as he sees fit. He's the one who said through Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 54, 17, No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me. Two key words to apply to a follower of Jesus, both used in this letter, are prisoner and slave. And when you see the word servant, it's doulos in the scriptures, and it's better translated slave or bond slave. It's the lowest form of servitude. So to call yourself a a servant of Christ sounds a little cleaned up, but a slave? I didn't like that. When I first started reading through the New American Standard Bible, and every translation tended to be slave, I'm like, oh... Why do they have to go from servant to slave? Servant at least sounds a little better. A little more positional. But he uses the word doulos for slave, lowest form of servant, and he uses the word desmios for prisoner. And desmios, when he says this, I am a desmios of Christ Jesus, he says, I am one who is bound. I am one who literally is bound to Christ. That's my role. That's my position. I'm not bound to a centurion. I'm bound to Jesus. The centurion is incidental. And as we talked about before, Paul was bound to a centurion. Why? So that the entire group of centurions would hear about God, would hear about Jesus through Paul. So he was bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. Both these words, prisoner and slave, are used in the New Testament to describe Jesus' people. That is who we are. And that is when you give your life to Jesus Christ, that is what you become, a prisoner, bond slave of Jesus. And yet, to be a prisoner, slave of Jesus is to be among the most free people of the world. It is a freedom the world does not comprehend. It's a freedom, truly, that the world, much like ancient Israel, tends to run from. That's a great irony to me, that God opens up His hand and says, Hey, come and be free. Come, bind yourself to me, and I will make you utterly free. And people freak out, and they run in the opposite direction. Listen to this. This is Isaiah chapter 30. Familiar to some of you, 
God said, this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Does that not describe the world? It's rebellious, don't want to hear what God has to say. God is declaring freedom, and they're declaring fear and running for their lives. And then down in verse 15 of Isaiah 30, the Lord says, In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. He said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. We will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man, you will all flee at the threat of five, until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and a signal on a hill that is utterly desolate. This world is running from freedom. And we as prisoners of Christ have the only true freedom there is to offer. A message of freedom in Him that can only be understood by a soul, a spirit bound to Jesus. Do we prisoners, this being understood, have empathy to receive the runaways? I I keep getting brought back to this over and over in my own heart, in my own life. How do I look at the unsaved world? Do I look at them as the opposition? The non-Christian as the heathen who we need to keep out? Or do I look at the unsaved as those who desperately need Jesus? Who are fleeing at the threat of one who are desolate like a flagpole on a mountaintop? Do I have empathy for them in the same way Jesus had empathy for me? We were driving back from the airport just uh, last night, late last night as we got in from Wisconsin. And as we, we got off the freeway to get some water, we were both really thirsty. And then we got back on the freeway. But when we were getting on the on-ramp, I was kind of flying along, heading for the freeway. And suddenly, out of nowhere, there was a woman crossing the street, crossing the freeway entrance. It was utterly pitch dark out there. I'm, I'm telling you the story now because I didn't hit and kill her. Had I, I probably wouldn't be here teaching tonight. But I slammed on the brakes and skidded to a halt. I'm kidding you not, about that far, like six inches from her. She hit my hood, threw up her arms, and started shouting at Cheryl and I, What are you doing? How and I'm like, no lights, no crosswalk, no reason why any pedestrian should be crossing here. And she wouldn't move. And I've got cars honking behind me now, piling up behind me, and my rage meter is starting to climb. Like, you don't know how long I've been traveling, and my grandson is several states away, woman. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And, and so I just, she would not move. So I slowly moved my car around her and, and started to pass by her. And as we passed by her, she banged on Cheryl's window. Didn't break, thankfully. And we just took off and, and we got back on the freeway. Cheryl said, that's just ridiculous. She said she had to be on drugs. And I'm sure she was. I'm sure she was utterly stoned. For about, well, let me be honest, for about an hour of driving, I was furious. <laughs> At this woman doing that to me, and, and, and you know, accusing me when she was clearly the one in the wrong, and, and as time and, and everything began to wear down, I started to think how lost she must be. And do I have a heart for the woman who would dent my car? She didn't, but she could have. Do I have a heart for someone who is lost, who is confused, who is, you know, in a position like I'm pretty sure she was? And even if she wasn't, I mean, we are surrounded by people who do not know the Lord, who think they're free, free to do it, I'm free to sin however I want to, not realizing the chains that come with it. We as prisoners of Christ have been set.
free. Back in Philemon, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved and fellow worker. If you note the word brother there uh, in italics, Philemon, our beloved brother. Brother's not in there. The word's not in there. It's just Philemon, our beloved and fellow worker. I just like the way that phrase sounds. I mean, that's a phrase I could use with any one of you. My beloved and fellow workers in Christ. And we read this, and it's an ironic situation that that Paul, again, happens to be close personal friends with this Philemon. Close enough that he calls him a beloved personal worker. A, A man he's in fellowship, who's the master of Onesimus, as I said. And he calls him this beloved fellow worker. Paul uses the phrase for both Philemon and Onesimus. Look down in verse 16. He says he's no longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. How much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Philemon's beloved, Onesimus is beloved. we got a situation here. Ever been in a position where you have two beloved brothers or siblings in the fellowship, but they're opposed to each other? Okay, don't think for a moment that Paul didn't understand that. He had to deal with a master and a slave. And try and find, how do we reconcile this situation? And Paul's love for both Philemon in Colossae and Onesimus there in his service in Rome resulted in this communique. If he didn't see them both as beloved, if he didn't have loving fellowship with both men, we wouldn't have this letter. And we begin to realize the importance of fellowship and relationship and why I believe this letter is included in the canon canon of Holy Scripture. It's fellowship. It is koinonia. It is relationship one with another. And it is a beautiful example of how that is to be walked out. Now, Philemon, I mentioned before, I'll mention it again, is the first, we believe, of four prison letters that Paul wrote, or at least were preserved by the Spirit. We have Philemon, that would be followed by or in concert with Colossians. Both letters probably sent to Colossae at the same time by Tychicus and Onesimus. And then after that we'll have Ephesians. You'll see why, because when we start to study Colossians, you come into Ephesians and everything culminates in Ephesians. What Paul begins to say in Colossians just gets expanded upon in Ephesians. And then at some point after that, in that same year, in 62, the book, the letter to the church in Philippi is written as well. But I want you to get this. Our beloved and fellow worker. That word, beloved, it's a wonderful word. Agapetos. Beloved, that is unconditionally beloved. It is from the root word agape. The agapetos. Our agapetos fellow worker. But this is important. In the Gospels, the word beloved, agapetos, is only used to describe the Son of God. It never describes a disciple. It never describes a follower. It never describes anyone in fellowship in the four Gospels. It only describes Jesus. But God comes along and, and, and proves His love for us in that Jesus Christ was crucified for us. And in the proving of that love, He calls us into a new relationship with Him and with each other so that now we are the Agapetos. Jesus was the only Agapetos before, the only beloved Son of God. Now you, me, we are beloved sons and daughters of God. We are the Agapetos. And being the beloved, it's more than just satisfying. Oh, it's that. 
I love the thought of being beloved by the Lord. But it's more than self-satisfaction. It has a dynamic function. Because the more we understand this idea of each other as the beloved, the more impact we have for the kingdom. How do people know that we are disciples of Jesus? He, He said, by how much you love each other. That's it. That is the singular key to revealing to people that we are a fellowship of Christians is that we love each other. The agapetos, the beloved. And this this power of, of love in Christ Jesus is unlike that of any other realm. During the campaign, Hillary Clinton started saying, we need more love. Democrats will say, we need more love. You know, you Republicans are so hateful and, and hard-hearted. And, and the Democrats saying, we need love. You know what? They're right. But here's the problem. Well, they're not, I don't think they're right about the Republican part. But right about the fact that we need more love in this country. We do. But there's a big problem with that concept. We can't do it outside of Jesus. Because the reality is we can say we love the killers of ISIS and we're going to treat them as loved ones. Will that stop their killing? Of course not. Of course it won't. The problem with the idea of offering agapetos stature to this world is there's evil and there's sin and the heart of man is dark Hopelessly sick. Jeremiah 17, 9, look it up. So what do we do? If the world is sick, how do we, how does love change things? Well, it's love in Christ. It's love that flows through Christ by the Spirit of Christ. It is Christ in you that calls you, that draws you into being agapetos, but also has you offer and, and, and share that with the rest of the beloved. It's because of Jesus. You take Jesus out of any mix and it will not work. And we'll see that in Colossians, by the way. I'm really excited to get into that book. Evil and hatred in the world would just bowl us over to destruction if we just went around saying, free love, man. If we just went back to the 60s and all started wearing flowers in our hair and smoking weed, you know, and and hugging everybody we ran into, we would be wiped out as a country. You know that. So it doesn't work unless, unless, listen, unless death is no longer a factor, which is what happens to the beloved. We've been freed from that. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he who died, he died for all so that they who live, that's us, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So death no longer has mastery over me. What do I have to be afraid of? Now I'm free to love. Now I can show what it means to be part of the agapetos, the beloved of Christ Jesus. And if someone were to kill me for it, so be it. Because they can't. Because I am going to live forever. That's what Jesus did. The beloved are enabled to love without fear. Because there is nothing to fear in the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's beloved son is Timothy. He calls him that in other places. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, he refers to Timothy as his beloved, his agapetos son. And Timothy is clearly here with Paul in the writing to Philemon. But he's not as his scribe. In fact, because of Paul's own language in this letter, we're pretty convinced that he wrote the whole thing. 
Whereas most of his letters, he had a scribe, an amanuensis is what they call it, uh, someone who writes it for him, uh, uh, he, someone who takes dictation and puts pen to the paper. In this case, it's Paul. But Timothy is with him in fellowship alongside Paul at this time. But I say that just to point out, Paul wrote it because this is a personally penned letter from Paul to Philemon. Very, very personal. I mentioned that a week and a half ago, and I told you I would tell you why tonight. Because you read the intro, and it seems not quite so personal. If you're just skimming across the surface, because he says to Philemon, our beloved and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that sounds like he's sending a letter to the fellowship, doesn't it? I mean, at least to Philemon's fellowship. Maybe if it's not a letter to the whole church at Colossae, it's at least a letter to the small group that meets at Philemon's place. So how can you say it's a a personal letter? Well, think about that. He does mention all these, and again, this is a letter about fellowship, about koinonia. Keep that in mind. But as he writes, he mentions Aphia, our sister. Aphia means fruitful. And it's likely that Aphia is Philemon's wife. We don't know, can't say absolutely for sure, but probably in the way that this is written and the way the, the, the letter is sent, it's probably Philemon and his wife, Aphia. And to Archippus, our fellow soldier, Archippus means horse master. It's interesting, I don't know why that means anything, but you can draw your own conclusions. Um, Archippus, some think, was Philemon's son. So we have Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus in, in their house. Others have a different perspective, and I just pause to say this about Archippus, because we will see him again. It's possible Archippus is more of a mission pastor in Colossae. that happens to be involved with this home fellowship at Philemon's place, because Archippus is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul says, Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. So there's a, a, there's a recommendation, a commendation, an encouragement to Archippus in the letter to the church at Colossae. So very likely that Archippus is not Philemon's son, but he's actually like a house pastor or, or a missionary who's gone to work in the city, in the region of the Lycus Valley there in Colossae. Take care, he says. Again, in Colossians 4.17, Heed the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I hear that and I think, wow, we could all use a little of that. Hey, Rick, heed the ministry. Pay attention to the ministry you've been given in order to fulfill it. What's yours? What is your ministry? Oh, I don't have a ministry. I've got to go to work in the morning, Rick. There you go. That is your ministry. Pay attention to your ministry. If you are a prisoner of Jesus Christ, guess what? Slaves, you got to do what he says. And guess what? He has said that he has something for you to do. What is your ministry? Pay heed to it. Take heed. Fulfill it. Do the ministry to which you've been called and do it as unto the Lord. Because we don't have all all the time in the world. I love that he says this to Archippus. You need to fulfill this man. You made a commitment. Follow through. We don't know if Archippus wasn't following through or if Paul is just trying to encourage him. But the point is, get it done. Hebrews 10.37 says, Yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. 
Revelation 22.20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen, come Lord Jesus. But do you ever find yourself saying, "Uh, amen, not so fast, Lord Jesus. Some of you are shaking your head. Chris is like, now, let's be out of here. But do you ever kind of think, well, but I'm not fulfilling my ministry. I'm not sure I want Jesus to show up tonight because i got some stuff i got to get done. Let me just lovingly say to you what Paul said to Archippus. Get it done. Do it. Don't delay. Because the day is coming and will fast be upon us when Jesus Himself will not delay and it will all be over. The time is short. Well, Athea and Archippus, and finally Paul greets the church in your house... So with all of these mixed in along with Philemon, how can we call this a personal one-to-one letter? We call it that because of the use of the word you and your. In this letter, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word you, that second person personal reference, and every single one but three in the whole letter are in the singular form. He is writing to Philemon. He greets these others, assuming that Philemon will pass along the greeting, but the letter is to Philemon. And again, it's not till the very end where we see three final references that are in the plural form of the second person personal. These are all singular. He is writing to his beloved brother, his fellow worker, Philemon. Verse 4. I thank my God always, making mention of you, second person personal singular, making mention of you in my prayers. What a great verse. This is probably the one verse in Philemon most people know. I thank my God always for you making mention of you in my prayers. I mean, that's a tagline that is in letters and emails and texts, and it's, it's still used in the church today. I thank my God for you. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. Now, this is Paul's style. He always does this in his letters. He starts off with a thankfulness for the people to whom he's writing. And and it's typical of Paul with, with few exceptions, thankfulness for fellowship with his recipients. And I believe he means it. By the way, you want a good barometer for belovedness? You think, okay, if I'm the agapetos, if I'm the beloved, how do I measure that? How do I test that? Well, here's your barometer. Am I more thankful for or rankled by the fellowship? When I think of my church fellowship, am I thankful? Am I like, thank you, Lord, for the bridge fellowship and and, and that we have these... Thankful for the people I get to sit by on Sundays and and see on Wednesdays and and meet with during the week. Thank you, Lord. Or are you just like, ah, that church. It's only one reason I go, and it's if I didn't, I might go to hell. Are you thankful? For fellowship with other believers. First John chapter 4, verse 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You're going to be the agapetos, you've got to give the agape. And the way you feel about each other, the way we feel in this fellowship, because this is the fellowship that you know, we're connected to. If you're in another fellowship, same thing applies. How do you feel? Are you thankful? Paul is so thankful. John says in 1 John 4, 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That means Jesus' style. That means we live the way Jesus lived. And He was thankful. 
even for his messed up disciples. Thankful for the people. Loved on people. And this is love, 1 John 4.10. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So be thankful in fellowship. Paul was, and he recognizes this deep fellowship love in Philemon. Verse 5, he says, Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Faith in Jesus I get. Faith in the saints? I'm not sure how that plays because it's not by believing in Glenn that I'm saved. Right? And Glenn can thankfully say it's not by believing in Rick that I'm saved. No. Faith here, the, the word is pistis in the Greek and it can be translated loyalty. It can also be translated faithfulness. Yes, it is faith. But Paul's saying, I believe, two things here. He's talking about the faith that Philemon has in Jesus and the loyalty that he has to the fellowship of believers. You have faith in Jesus. You have loyalty to the fellowship. And listen, faith in Jesus is what develops faithfulness toward the saints. Loyalty to one another. The more I love Jesus, the more I'm going to love you. The more time I spend with Jesus, the more I'm going to want to spend time with you. See, because some things to jot down about fellowship. Fellowship needs faithfulness. Fellowship needs faithfulness. Now, you, you may think, well, that's a no-brainer. But listen, the Bible is intent on our being together. Togetherness, one anotherness, each otherness. Any opportunity that we have to live out the Christian life together, a fellowship needs faithfulness, that is, to the fellowship. Because to be out of fellowship tends to breed unfaithfulness. And I have experienced this in my life, perhaps you have too. When I am out of faith, out of fellowship, my faith meter tends to go down. And the more I'm out of fellowship with other believers in Christ, yes, imperfect people, but beloved, the more I'm out of fellowship, the, the less I'm trusting the Lord. It's, it's a natural dynamic, and I believe it's the way that God built us. He built us for fellowship, and especially in a place where the Lord Jesus is present, oh, it's deeper and richer than any other relationships. And so Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. We need fellowship. And you may say, and Rick, that's why we're all here tonight. (laughs) To which I would reply, I know, you're the choir. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. And I'm glad you're here. But I'll tell you what, I think maybe we all together can do a better job inviting the rest of our fellowship in. I mean, have you thought about that? I prayed this earlier, but have you thought about inviting someone who's part of the fellowship, who you see on Sunday morning, inviting a friend in Jesus on a Sunday morning to come Wednesday night? Maybe to meet you for coffee beforehand and bring them in? We need this. And oftentimes, it's not until we fall into it that we realize how much we need this togetherness right here, right now. That's why I made Deb get up and move from her favorite seat halfway up... (laughs) 
It's why we all had to move around, you know, and get a little uncomfortable. It's why we did the communion thing. I know I've told you this before, but it's so that we would start bumping into each other, running into each other, getting face to face, and realizing fellowship. It's why we have the potluck. It's why we're going to do the Passover Seder. It's why we'll have another potluck soon. That's all, you know, that's all window dressing. It's an excuse, really, for us to develop fellowship. Because fellowship needs faithfulness. It is never about records. It is never about the roles. It's, man, it is about this dynamic of spiritual growth personally and corporately. It happens. I don't grow that well by myself. It's kind of like the redwood trees. Have you ever heard this? Redwood trees have very, very shallow root systems. Which is why when you see, if you drive through the redwood forests, they're all so close together because their roots wrap around and hang on to each other. That's how they maintain strength. But if you cut down, you start clear-cutting a redwood forest and you leave one tree to itself, it will fall. Same thing with us. Fellowship needs faithfulness. Verse 6 And so he says, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may be effective or become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Only Paul doesn't say, and I pray. That's one of those little things that the translators added in to try and give it a little more flow. I like it better when that statement is absent from the text because it is more of a statement than it is a prayer. Listen to it in context without the italicized words. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you in Christ's sake. See how that's different? The impetus isn't Paul's prayer that fellowship would happen. The impetus is faith in the Lord and faithfulness toward all the saints. When those two things are happening, then it naturally flows that the fellowship, the koinonia of your faith becomes effective. And that's what he's saying here. That that truly, second thing to note, fellowship breeds faithfulness. Fellowship not only needs faithfulness, but it breeds faithfulness. It is the active impact of koinonia. And Paul described it this way, it's what springs from faith to faith. Romans 1.17 That is, my faith grows to a deeper faith, but your faith and my faith, as they collide, as they run into each other, as they koinonia with one another, they grow together. And the dynamic of growth is far better when we do it together than it is when I'm off by myself. I'll tell you something, I see a lot of things when I'm studying up alone in my office. Write down a lot of notes. Some of the most profound things that I have understood or realized, I think the Holy Spirit has popped into my brain, happens right here, right now. It happens when we gather as fellowship. Because there's something dynamic that takes place. And even better than that, better than simply when I'm teaching or preaching, is when Les and I will sit in my office and start talking. And next thing we know, two hours has gone by. Two hours that we're being paid just to sit there. (laughs) But the dynamic is wonderful because he'll say something and, and that'll, that'll spark something in my spirit and I'll say something, I'll spark something in his and, and, and it's why tomorrow night at our shepherd's meeting I have no agenda. Well, how can you go into a shepherd's meeting with no agenda? Because God's got one. And we're going to have a group of guys get together and we're going to start praying and listening to the Lord and it's remarkable what comes out. Those are my favorite meetings. 
because we're not generating what's taking place. Fellowship breeds faithfulness. Therefore, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul says, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Again, I'm taking some time on this fellowship issue because it is the heart of the letter. That word fellowship is, again, koinonia, the koinonia of your faith. Paul says, I want it to be effective. One of the great values of Philemon in the Bible is koinonia because God uses koinonia to change us. Inside and out. Hebrews 10.23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, take that personally. Let us who gather here be encouragers of fellowship. Encouraging our fellow brothers and sisters who may not make it in other... The the people you know who are Sunday-only Christians or once-a-month Christians, go after them. Encourage them to fellowship. Because the more we're in fellowship, the more we grow. It is the habit, forsaking assembly, isn't it? Isn't it in America today? In the church today? Think about the church in Philemon's house. I wonder, I really wonder this, how much encouragement did they need to meet together? So early on in the first century church, when when the church in Jerusalem was exploding, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 people, how much did they have to send out flyers and reminders that they were meeting? (laughs) How much did they have to say, look, I'm going to guilt trip you now because you're not here on Wednesday night, we really need you. I mean, no, when you get the agapetos... You get fellowship. And when you get fellowship, you want to be where fellowship is happening. And so those of us who understand that and get that, we are called to be encouragers of this koinonia that we're talking about. Verse 7. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Man, that's Philemon. What a guy. You just attribute verses 4 through 7 to him and Paul's description of him and Paul's love for him and you realize this is a wonderful guy and he's a slave owner. Don't forget that. That's the reason we've got this little problem. This is a slave owner who is a beloved brother in the Lord. Why doesn't Paul simply command the freedom of Onesimus? And that's kind of the question of the letter. He does appear to hint at this toward the end of the letter, but even toward the end of the letter, that the freedom of Onesimus is implicit, not explicit. He doesn't come right out and demand it. He just kind of hints at it, kind of dances around it a little bit. What do you do when you have a beloved brother or sister in the Lord who's doing something that you know is contrary to God's will? How do we deal with that? First of all, I wonder, do we love them enough to even say something? But when we do say something, how do we go about this? Listen, the reason I believe Paul doesn't explicitly address slavery in this letter is because he recognizes that God's patient redemption is at work in Philemon. Now, redemption happens instantaneously. But the, but the impact of it is like shockwaves that go through our lives. I was saved at 10 years old and I knew it. 
But the shockwaves of that salvation, of that moment of redemption, calling on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, the shockwaves have not lessened, they have increased over the, the 42 years since then. And that's how redemption works. I think Paul understands that, that redemption is far more powerful and lasting than the force of law. Command. You know, Paul the Apostles could have just commanded this. Well, he doesn't. I think Paul probably sees in Philemon that this man is growing in leaps and bounds in the Lord. And he doesn't want to get in the way of that. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You know what that means? It means I'm not here to perfect Rachel. That's not my job. I'm here to encourage my sister, even as she is here to encourage me. But it's not my role to pick her apart. It's my role to encourage her to follow the Lord, to seek Him, and to let redemption have its perfect work in her. And that is different than saying, look, Rachel, I mean, here's my list. And the list is long. <laughs> of things that need fixing and straightening up. No, that's, just, that's not how we think. i got enough to worry about right here. Just with me. So Paul doesn't force this. He says in Philippians 2.13, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Verse 8, Therefore, though I have enough or much confidence in Christ, I think much is a better translation of the word there, though I have much confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet, for love's sake, I rather appeal since I am such a person as Paul, the ambassador, if your Bible says aged, that word, remember we talked about it Sunday, is also ambassador. Paul, the ambassador, and now also the prisoner. The presbytos desmios is what he says. Presbytos, the elder, the ambassador, and prisoner, the desmios, of Christ Jesus. And I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. I stop right there. Paul, the aged or the ambassador, really, as in Ephesians 6.20, I'm an ambassador, same word, I'm an ambassador in chains. Paul, the ambassador, could order this. As the apostle of Jesus, he could, he has the right to order this man Philemon to set Onesimus free. And we wouldn't have a letter, we'd have a sentence. Set him free, I demand this in the Lord. And you're done. He doesn't do it. He appeals instead for the sake of love, which, again, like redemption, is more permanent and more permeating. If we can get across to one another the love of Christ Jesus, it permeates more deeply than the command, than the requirement. So he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten, in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. My child Onesimus. The old rabbis used to refer to someone who had become a Jew, who had converted to Judaism. They referred to them as a child just born. Which is interesting because Jesus says we are born again. It's a very rabbinical term. To say you have now come to a a new kind of life. And it's what the rabbis would say. And Paul himself often refers to his born-again converts as his children. 
People he's led to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4.14, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Galatians 4.19, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Or 1 Timothy 1.2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Because you see, number three on fellowship, fellowship seeds family. Fellowship seeds family. I said this recently, it draws us together more tightly. The blood of Christ is thicker than water. The blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of humanity. We get bound as family. And so Paul is appealing for his his child, his begotten in prison, he says. How's that work? Well, he was born again. Meeting with Paul there in prison, there in his house arrest. And so he appeals for him. Note this, that appeal, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, can be read two ways, both in Greek and in English. It can either mean, on behalf of, I appeal to you for Onesimus, on behalf of Onesimus, or it can be, I appeal to you for Onesimus, that is, to give me Onesimus. I'm asking for Onesimus. I would like him to come back. I'm sending him to you to get your permission to come back and work for me. And F.F. Bruce even writes, The terms in which Paul amplifies his appeal makes it clear that this is indeed his meaning. Paul wants Onesimus to come back to Rome. So part of this letter is, I'm sending him to you, I'm I'm, I'm wanting to see forgiveness and, and reconciliation happen, and then, boy, my hope is that you'll send him right back to me. Why, Paul? Because he's useful now. Onesimus, his name means useful Remember we talked about that. It's a typical slave name in in Roman days, in in the first century. Onesimus, useful one. The useless runaway slave now is the useful redeemed son and he is of great use to Paul. So Paul's like, boy, you know. I mean, think about how useful he's become. If Paul's willing to send him a thousand miles back to Colossae only to have him sent a thousand miles back to Paul. This is a significant kid who has become very important to the Apostle. Now I just want to point this out if you didn't hear it a week ago. The words useful and useless. It's very interesting. He, he's using word plays, but, but rather than using the root word for Onesimus, which is where the name comes from, Paul uses different words when he says, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to me and to you. He uses the words useful, eucrestos, and useless, acrestos. And if you were spelling it in English, you would use an E in the middle of it, crestos, which means useful. Crestos, Christos. Paul, in playing this wordplay and using this pun, I am absolutely convinced is pointing to Jesus. And what we can draw out of this is that to be, to be acrestos, that is, or acrestos, that is without Christ, is to be useless. Now listen carefully here, because I'm very, very serious about this. To be without Christ is to be useless in this world. To be with Christ, or Eucrestos, well with Christ, is to become suddenly useful in this world. Now a non-believer would hear that and be highly offended. How dare you make a comment like that, that oh, all you Christians are useful and we are useless. No, listen. This is how I can make this value statement. Without Jesus, my value is temporal. Without Jesus, my value is today. 
That's the best you can get out of me is what I can do in this life and eventually this life is going to end and that's all. That's it. That is a Christos. That's without Christ. I, I, what, what is my usefulness eternally? And when we're 20 gazillion years into eternity looking back at the amount of time we were on this earth, the only thing that any of us will ever say was of value and use was that person who became a follower of Jesus because I led them to Christ. That's the only useful thing I did. All those other things that I thought were so important I can't even remember. But that, him, her, them, there's our usefulness. And so suddenly to be well with Christ, to be you Christos, Man, it makes my worth limitless because now my worth becomes eternal and not limited to today. As Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16, place close, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and also for those who hear you. So Onesimus here is made useful in Christ. He's born again and suddenly he becomes a useful servant of Paul. Paul wants him back. Practically and spiritually. And whether it's going to be back with Paul in Rome, and we don't know how the story ends, or staying with Philemon and the church in Colossae, we don't know. But either way, Onesimus became useful. Verse 12. I have sent him back to you in person. That is, no, Paul says this, sending my very heart. I am sending you my heart, he says, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. When I read this, I hear Paul working it through. I hear him figuring it out and and thinking it through. You know, I I, I can't just command this. I love Philemon too much. But I really could use Onesimus here. So what's the right thing to do? The right thing is put it in the hands of Onesimus. I mean Philemon. Trust Philemon to do what's right. Ask him. Appeal to him. And Paul, this is, this is a passionate letter. Don't miss that it's passionate. When he says, I am sending you my very heart, and he doesn't use the word cardia, which is the Greek word for heart. He uses instead splachnon. Guts. Bowels is the word. And it's the Greek word that is the seat of emotion and feeling. If you wanted to really say, man, my, my heart is torn up, you'd say, my guts are torn up by this. And Paul says, it's like I'm sending you my insides. That's how he feels. This is very personal and it really is affecting Paul. And he he wants Onesimus back. He wants this reconciliation. And so he's saying these things to Philemon. Some might read this and go, ah, he's just playing politics. You know, he's just being passive aggressive. That's all. No, he's not. He is not. Paul is in essence saying, Philemon, bro, I love you. Here's my hope. My hope is you'll send Onesimus back. But it's up to you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you what would be great. I'm going to give you my will, but I'm not going to command it. And it's the right attitude. Fellowship, number four. Have I given you three already? I think I have. Number four, fellowship concedes to a brother. 
or a sister. Fellowship concedes to a brother or a sister. It places their interests on a higher plane than my interests. It makes their decision more important than my need. And what Paul's doing is sending Onesimus. He's saying to Philemon, look, I care more for you than about getting what I want. Here's what I want, but I want you to make that call. And I trust you to do it. And what you decide, I will live with. He's placing Philemon ahead of himself. And once again, I mentioned this before, Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus are bound by koinonia. In this remarkable relationship, each man's choice affects the other. And each man is being called upon to concede to the other. Paul has to concede to Philemon. Onesimus has to concede to Philemon. Philemon has to concede to the other too. But that's what fellowship does. It starts to take me down, notch by notch by notch, my self-importance, even at the same time as others' importance is going up, notch by notch by notch. And the more others are elevated in my thinking, and the more I am, what's the opposite of elevated? The more I'm escalated. (laughs) That's not it. Anyway, I'm going down, you're going up, and guess what? In that environment of beloved fellowship, I find freedom. I find joy. And that's what Paul is teaching us here. 1 Corinthians 12.26 You know the verse, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with them. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with them. You are Christ's body and individually members of it. Verse 15 For perhaps, Paul goes on to write, He was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. So Paul concedes right there. Maybe it's so that he'll come back and just stay with you. And if that's God's will, then that's God's will. Verse 16, No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. A beloved brother, the agapetos. There he is. And again, Paul is not demanding it, but you start to hear him hinting, don't you? He's no longer a slave. Now he's a brother. And Philemon, you're going to have to deal with that. The fact that your one-time slave is now born again and a fellow believer in Christ Jesus. What are you going to do with that? Paul doesn't command him, but he's starting to hint here. He's saying what he said to the churches in Galatia. Probably five, ten years before this, Galatians 3.28, there is neither slave nor free man. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He's no longer a slave. Both, by the way, in the flesh and in the Lord, which means spiritually, obviously, he's not a slave to anybody but Jesus. But Philemon, he's also not a slave in the flesh anymore. You need to treat him as more than that. Verse 17 If then you regard me a koinonos, a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I underlined that in my Bible in red because it reminds me so much of Jesus. You charge his fault, you charge his error, you charge his theft to me. I will pay for that. I will cover his account. And here again is the heart of the prisoner of Christ reflecting the heart of the Master. Think back to the night of Jesus' betrayal in the upper room. He's just finished washing the disciples' feet, all 24 of them including Judas. 
And when he finishes, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, John 13, 13. And you're right. So I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And listen, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Wash each other's feet? Well, Rick, why don't we have foot washing here at the bridge every week? In fact, I've had people ask ask me that. I'm like, I don't want to wash your feet. (laughs) Why don't we do foot washing? I mean, Jesus commanded foot washing, and there are those who take it that way. Let me impress upon you, he's not just talking about podiatric purification. He's not talking about foot washing. It's so much more. Jesus was literally hours away from paying every debt ever owed. Charging it to his account. He's about to do this. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Jesus charged it all to his account. And as servants of the Master, can we do any less? If I've done this to you, Jesus says, how much more ought you to do this to one another? It's not just washing feet. Are you willing to die for a brother or sister? Are you willing to put them a notch above yourself? Why would I? Because Jesus did. And because He's my Master. And because I'm becoming like Him. Verse 19. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, and I will repay it. I love this. Not to mention that you owe me to me even your own self as well. Forget about the fact that it's because of me that you're a follower of Jesus anyway. We'll just set that aside. But, (laughs) and at that point you might say, now he's being a little passive-aggressive. No, 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 no. He's not keeping a record of Philemon's debt to him in the Lord. He is just raising it by way of example. He's saying, remember, this this is how this works. Remember, I I came to you, I met you, you you gave your life to Jesus because of, of my teaching. If that is of any value to you, Philemon, how should you behave toward Onesimus? It's so practical, and Paul is just laying it out. Not manipulating, he is, well, he's walking in the light. And that's something the world sometimes looks at this letter and, and, and they would say it's manipulative, he's playing politics, he's trying to weasel his way into Philemon doing what he wants. No, he's laying it all out. He is walking in the light as he is in the light. And what happens when we do that? We have what? Fellowship one with another. I wonder if I should share this. Uh, maybe I can share part of this. It's very personal. It was the last night that we were at Hannah and Josiah's house, and, and Hannah was a little upset and wanted to talk to Cheryl and I. I won't, I won't give you the whole subject of the conversation, but family was together for a week. <laughs> Pretty much says it all right there, doesn't it? 
and here we are learning how to be brand new grand- grandparents, and here they are learning how to be brand new parents, and, and all of that comes together and, and can make for some interesting dynamics. And it was, don't please don't get me wrong, it was a wonderful week. But I was so impressed with Hannah and Josiah, because there were a couple of issues, they weren't big deals, but had they not shared them with us, had we not had the conversation, they would have festered. But Hannah went to Josiah and said, I don't know, I'm feeling this way, I've got these, you know, this stuff, and, and part of it, you know, it just, it had to do with her desire to be such a good mom, and let me just say to you, I have not seen a better mom. I am so amazed with my little girl and the kind of mama that she is for my grandson. Enough that I'm letting him stay with her a little longer. <laughs> but, but she said, Josiah, I, there are some things that I want to say, I, I'm not, I don't know what to do about this, and Josiah in his wisdom said, well, we've got to talk to them about it. We had the greatest talk, had a wonderful evening, went on to play board games until midnight, but, but it was because they chose to walk in the light that we had fellowship one with another. And I'll tell you what, I know it's frightening, especially in family relationships at times, you know? I know it can be difficult to come to someone and talk about something that's an issue. There's the elephant in the living room. If we just ignore it, maybe it won't knock down all the walls, <laughs> but it will. And if we are the agapetos, if we are in koinonia fellowship, then we got to talk about stuff. we got to be willing to love each other enough to put it out on the table and go, look, let's just... I'm sure I've done something here to offend you. And I'm offended. I, I'm feeling stuff. And, and I, Can we talk and work this out together? Can we walk in the light together? That's what Paul's doing. Fellowship conceives to a brother or a sister. And by the way, let me just say this, that's concession, it's not capitulation. What do you mean? There is a difference. Christian fellowship should always encourage right moral choices. Always. But at the same time, Christian fellowship doesn't always command right moral choices. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there are some things that are just blatant wrongs, and you need to address the blatant wrong. You need to have the guts to do that in family, among friendships. Just lay it out there. But there are some things where you know a way that is right. And someone, a brother or sister, isn't quite there. So you bang them over the head with your Bible, or do you just keep loving them and looking for opportunity to encourage them? I think you know what I'm saying. I'm manipulating you to agree with me. (laughs) Is there ever a circumstance when we should not make concessions for each other? Yes, if the Master doesn't make those concessions. As prisoners of Christ, if the Master, as bond slaves of Jesus, if Jesus makes no concession on an issue, I won't either. Listen to how he puts it, Luke twelve forty seven. That slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in according with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to they who have been entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Which kind of means, here's the downside of being Wednesday night koinonia. You know a little more. Guess what? A little more is expected of you. And the more I know of Jesus, the more He expects me to act like He would. So there are cases where we make concessions one for another, realizing, okay, He's just not quite there. He will mature. She will grow. She'll get there. I'm just going to keep loving and, and pouring God's Word into this person's life. But there are some situations where you're like, growth or no growth, this is wrong. This is sin. We've got to address it for that person's sake. 
And again, look to the Master. What would He do? How does He address the situations? Well, Paul is gently reminding Philemon all of this, and he gets down to verse 20. He says, Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. This is... This is where I think he is, again, asking for Onesimus, desiring for Onesimus to be sent back to him in Rome. Refresh my heart in Christ. Let me benefit from this situation. As you work it out, I would love to be the beneficiary having Onesimus come back and work with me. Now, Paul is punning again. And this time, he specifically uses the root word of Onesimus, when he says, Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord, the word is anonymi. And anonymi is where Onesimus comes from. And Paul uses right there the word anonymi, which is further evidence to me that up above, when he used acrestos and eucrestos, he was making the implication that it was of Christ. He was playing off of Christos. Because down here he uses anonymi. In the same way. But have you known the the benefit of seeing a brother or sister make good choices? So that that is so feeding. That is so encouraging. In fact, number five, fellowship feeds encouragement. Fellowship feeds encouragement. And it works both ways. When we walk in fellowship with one another, and when I ask things of you or, or encourage you in certain ways, you encourage me in certain ways, we benefit from that. I benefit from watching a brother or sister grow in the Lord. It's wonderful. I benefited in mentioning that situation with Hannah and Josiah. I can't even tell you. For me, that was like, aside from holding Silas all week long, which was the best, the second best was watching my son-in-law and my daughter walk out faith. That was awesome. I benefited. I was encouraged by that. I I was built up by that. And fellowship does that. We encourage each other's faith and we get the heart, it's refreshed. And again, Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus, if things go well, all three will be fed. All three will be encouraged. Paul says in Philippians 2.1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent, on one purpose. And that is the love of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to talk about that. Well, verse 21, Paul begins to conclude. He says, Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Implication? You're going to set Onesimus free. Paul knows Philemon well enough to know that with the receipt of this letter and the return of Onesimus, that Philemon is the kind of man he's going to set him free. He doesn't command it because he knows he's going to do it. And by the way, isn't it better if you make the choice yourself than if you feel guilt-tripped into it? Isn't righteousness always better chosen than prescribed? So sometimes we need to allow each other enough time to choose the righteous choice, the righteous path, rather than force it. You can force it, it just doesn't tend to stick as well. But the personal choice, Philemon's going to make that choice. We think Paul won't insist on it, but he insinuates it. Verse 22. At the same time, he says, also, prepare me a lodging, 
For I, I hope that through your prayers, I will be given to you. A couple quick things. First of all, this is Paul's indication. He's not going to be in prison long. He knows he's going to be let out. This is kind of, it's, it's a formality that he's in impri- imprisonment at all, that he's under house arrest. They're going to let him go because they don't have anything on him, and they don't. And by the way, they will let him go. So he says, hey, start getting ready because I'm, I'm going to make my way down there. He's not saying, Philemon, I'm coming. So you better get this active. No, he's saying, I'm going to be let out. Make provision for me. And by the way, here is for the first time in the letter where your and you is plural. So now he's talking to Philemon, and he's talking to Aphia and Archippus, and the entire church in Philemon's house. Hey, I'm going to be coming. I hope that through your prayers, I will be given or delivered to you. I love that. You're praying for me. Prayer is effective. It's going to do what it's supposed to do. Now as we come to the end of this great letter, we hear again the emphasis of koinonia in the church, verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. I want to draw back to a question I asked a week and a half ago. How do we know, as we talked about, the Philemon and Colossians were written and sent together? Well, one of the reasons, and I, I told you this before, Colossians 4.9, Paul says, along with Tychicus, I'm going to send Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. Onesimus is from Colossian, Colossae. I'm going to send him to you. He's one of you. And so we already have that picture that Colossians and Philemon's going to the same place anyway. But check this out. Note this. Every single person mentioned here, Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, everyone Paul mentions in this final greeting is listed at the close of his letter to the church at Colossae. So we'll see all these same names when we study Colossians as well. And so these two letters are partner letters. They're going together. They're being received by all, sent by the same people, received by the same people. And note this, especially the name Epaphras. Because Epaphras is vital to the church at Colossae. We'll see this mentioned when we get to Colossians, shooting for Sunday. Colossians 1.7 Just as you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf. It appears that Epaphras is the one who planted the church in Colossae. That on Paul's missionary journey, Epaphras himself was converted, born again, and that Epaphras went home to Colossae and started the church. Because while Paul was in the region there of, of Western Asia, we don't have any other evidence other than the letters that he actually entered Colossae. He may never have gone to Colossae yet. But he's known by people there, and we think it's because of Epaphras and men like Philemon. So verse 25 Finally, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And that's the final plural, your. Your spirit. That's the spirit of koinonia. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your... Do you realize that we together have... And don't get, I'm not getting weird on this, but we have a collective spirit. My spirit with your spirit we become of one spirit, one body in the Lord Jesus Christ, one Holy Spirit. 
who then fills us and connects us in, in an intimacy. Koinonia, it is beyond the comprehension of community in the world. It's a true intimate closeness. And Paul ends this letter, you might just write it off as the standard exit greeting. He says the same thing at the end of four different letters. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. But note this, he says grace. Fellowship needs faithfulness. Fellowship breeds faithfulness. It seeds family. It concedes to a brother or sister. It feeds encouragement. But finally, don't miss this final one. Fellowship proceeds from grace. Where there is no grace, you're not going to have healthy fellowship. There must be grace for fellowship to grow. It is absolutely necessary. And think about, just for a moment, the cultural impact of what Paul is asking Philemon to do. Set the slave free. That is implied in the letter. And you didn't just up and do that. You didn't go break class standards in that day and age. What Philemon would need to follow this through, guess what? Is the fellowship of believers. Philemon's decision is going to draw together the fellowship. He's going to need grace of the whole fellowship. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that produces koinonia. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Matthew 18.20 I love that verse, but I have loved it my whole life for one reason, and that's the presence of Jesus. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. He's present. He's here with us. But guess what? It's more than presence. It's koinonia. We don't just have the Lord present with us. We have Him fellowshipping with us. It's how He made us. It's what He desires from us and with us. Koinonia. So as we close this little letter, I will say to you all one more time, verse 4, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. And I do pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. God, what a marvelous letter. Thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for preserving it. Thank you, Spirit of the Lord, for putting this on Paul's heart. Thank you for Philemon and Onesimus and the church at Colossae and all these people that we will one day meet. Thank you for Epaphras and his faithfulness and Archippus for following through and and all of these that we've talked about. They are part of our fellowship and we will one day have that marvelous fellowship with them. But until then, you've done something marvelous, Lord, and we praise you and thank you for it. You have not only brought us together as a fellowship of believers, but you have inserted yourself to be present fellowshipping with us. That is an overwhelming thought. That the relationship that you call us to in all openness is a relationship you desire to share with us. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit that we would grow truly as a fellowship. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.